Hey there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today is a very special episode, but we're going to talk about the U.S. southern border crisis, the impending showdown between Russia and Ukraine, and we're going to chat about some of the key elections coming in around the world. Uh, All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan's acting Prime Minister, Mullah Mohammed Hassan Akund, has met with Russian, Chinese, and Pakistani delegates, uh, delegates and representatives in Kabul. And this is likely to talk probably uh, a number of things from border policy, because most of them have a border with each other. Uh, well, most of them have a border with Afghanistan, and by most I mean uh, China and Pakistan, um, but with regards to Russia, they have they have a bit of an indirect border that we've sort of talked about, where they put their troops on the borders of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, and they have borders with Afghanistan, but Russia has effectively projected their own borders as that border, so. Uh, to those confused, uh, just look at a map of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire and look at the region in question, uh, uh, the south, there we go. So that's sort of what we're looking at here. Um, although, if you look at the borders of Russia, it wouldn't seem like they would be involved in this region. But when once you see, once you see that they've effectively projected their troops onto their former borders in Uzbekistan, in Tajikistan, on the Afghan border, you can see why they would potentially be involved here. Um, So there's that. China has a very slim border in the north. Pakistan has a very long border. Uh, Interestingly enough, Iran wasn't a part of this, but I imagine there'll be be talks between uh, the Islamic Emirate and them in the near future, probably on a more bilateral level. Uh, yes. But more confirmation that what I have said in that Afghanistan's neighbors are already recognizing their legitimacy uh, and that's really all they need. So more more evidence to that claim that I have made in the past. Uh, much to my delight, you know, I like being right. But um, we're seeing that, and we're seeing more diplomatic ties being forged between the new government in Afghanistan and all of their neighbors. So it seems as though Afghanistan is going to have that period of peace that I talked about. Uh, I think I only mentioned it briefly uh, because they just went through a war, and the Taliban now has to really make the transition from being a fighting force to a governing political force. Uh, they were in the past, but 20 years of not being that can, you know, take you out of your element. So now they have to get back to that, and it's probably going to take some time. 
and they're the best way to do that is to not be at war while you're doing it so peace is definitely on the top of the agenda for the Taliban right now and the fact that they're able to secure it with all their neighbors through these increasing diplomatic ties and probably even trade ties uh, probably talked about as well during this meeting uh, that's exactly what Afghanistan needs right now after 20 years of war they're gonna need the peace and they, they want the peace after 20 years of war and they're gonna need it to really reestablish themselves as a governing force and that is just one of the interesting things in this transition that I've uh, drawn our attention to on this podcast and we'll see how they develop we'll see how they develop so definitely and I'm definitely keeping my eyes out for any um uh Afghan additions to the Belt and Road project um, because China could build a direct link between them and Iran going through Afghanistan uh, and they could even probably attempt to integrate parts of Afghanistan certain parts with the Pakistan economic corridor that'd be a bit rough because I know there's lots of border tensions between those two uh, especially in the north but perhaps in the south where even the geography would be more supportive of that we might see more uh we might see a natural extension of the pakistan economic corridor into parts of southern afghanistan and then from there we could see it reach into parts of southern iran so sort of a a two-pronged belt and road approach into iran uh, one from the north through Central Asia and one from the south through Pakistan and Afghanistan. Granted, they don't need Afghanistan to do that because uh, Pakistan and Iran already have a border in the south, uh, but it could happen, and that's a possibility, especially considering Pakistan and Iran are already signed on to the Belt and Road. So, uh, given that Afghanistan is a landlocked country, it might also be in their interest to sign on as well. I can't say that for certain, but it's a possibility. Uh, especially when their neighbors are all a part of it as well. They're probably going to want the infrastructure after 20 years of fighting. They're probably going to want it. So definitely something that I keep my eyes out on. And uh, yes, we will definitely see how this develops. On the other side of the world, in two directions, a magnitude 5.8 and a magnitude 6.2 earthquake have hit Australia and Nicaragua, respectively. Uh, lots of natural disasters this year. Well, I guess there's lots of natural disasters every year, but uh, I didn't have a podcast for those years, so we're uh, talking about it now. So, lots of earthquakes. Uh, before, there was lots of rain and storms. Uh, what's next? Maybe a volcanic eruption or a tsunami? We'll have to see. Maybe they'll just be a sinkhole in the middle of a very uh, inconvenient place, and it'll cause a big catastrophe. We don't hope for that, but uh, with the way things are going, would not be surprised if that's how it happened. Uh, I just hope it's not in my city. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Taliban, going back to Afghanistan here, they've appointed a new UN ambassador to represent the new government in Afghanistan, that new government obviously being the Taliban, who go by the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan rather than the Islamic Republic. So, new ambassador, uh, and P 
people who are opposed to the Taliban don't recognize him. So, very natural moves being made on both sides of this. Uh, in other news, though, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, I believe, uh, he has met with the chairman, the chairman, not the men, of the Libyan Presidential Council. Uh, and that man's name is Mohamed Al-Menfi, and they met along with Antonio Guterres, who's the Secretary General of the UN. And this is definitely talks that are come during the lead-up to that presidential election uh, that Libya is going to go through in December. I made the mistake last year. I thought it was going to be December 24th of last year. But it is December 24th of this year. So, that is a, that's a nice blemish on my history of being right. But my estimations and my speculations on what would go down with that election uh, so far still hold true. I do not believe that the warring parties are going to subject themselves to it. Uh, in anything more than, say, maybe an official capacity. Um, because, you, well, they're at war with each other. So, I estimate that there will be allegations of fraud. I estimate there will be allegations of unfair play and cheating. That will undermine the entire process. Uh, and there was a militia in Tripoli that already, that said right off the bat that they didn't care. They just were not going to compromise with their enemy. Um, and when you have a force like that, that is technically independent from the two governments, the, well, the government of Libya and General Hafdar, those are the two sides fighting each other. When you have this functionally independent force, because they can't, like, keep tabs on it in a direct manner. So when you have a force like that, and probably many more like it, just that one that one militia was the one that got the attention. When you have something like that, and they say they're just not going to accept the results of the election, that alone is going to undermine any result, even if both the General Hafdar's force and the Libyan government agree that the elections are on the up and up, uh, and agree to whoever wins, and agree to allow them to take power, uh, which is the other thing. Um, even if that happens, when you have forces like that, those unknowns, really, who, who I, I really can't stress this enough, that their existence and their refusal already, all right, the elections haven't even happened, but their refusal to accept the results undermines the election before it's even begun, and that's before you get to the two warring parties, uh, and the number of assumptions that we have to make um, that they're going to accept the results. And I'll be honest, I don't think they're going to accept the results. At least one of them won't, because at least one of them is going to lose. <laughs> I, I mean, we can hope and pray, because peace in Libya would be good for Libya and the Libyan people and the people living in countries around them. It would definitely, peace in Libya would definitely be helpful for the stability of the region. Algeria and Morocco just broke off ties, basically, and they're at each other's throats again, apparently. 
Egypt is buying weapons, and there's only one country that I can think of, um, realistically speaking, that those weapons are going to be aimed at, and it's Ethiopia. Sudan just narrowly got through a political crisis regarding their president. And there's a civil war in Ethiopia. So that entire belt running from Morocco along North Africa to Egypt and then from Egypt down to Ethiopia and even you can go say Somalia as well that entire belt is just in conflict and then you get to the Sahel where the French military and even the Chad military and a number of other local militaries are working together fighting Islamic militancy there uh, this region is unstable and it has a lot of destabilizing forces that are at play that are still at play it's not like it's just it's been destabilized but then it can it's just gradually getting back to something resembling stable but no it's on the ver it's all on the verge of full destabilization and the destabilizing forces are still there and they're not going away the civil war in Ethiopia is going to drag on. That's what it looks like. Uh, the conflict between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Renaissance Dam um, is growing. It's looming, I should say. And there's no... Uh, as long as Ethiopia is unwilling to compromise on how fast they fill up those reservoirs, because the speed at which they fill up the reservoir impacts uh, the water that goes downstream from the Blue Nile, which is the primary source of Egypt's water. They want to fill up the reservoirs very thick, very quickly. Egypt wants them to fill it up very slowly so that the Nile doesn't dry up on them. So both of them have their own reasons and their own interests, and acting in their own interests, they've come to blows over this issue. And it's probably going to end in a shootout, which, depending on the state of Ethiopia, when that shootout comes about, um, Egypt might actually win. Ooh, Egypt might actually win. Because Ethiopia is in a civil war right now. We don't know when that civil war is going to end. I said, it w I, I said it wouldn't end back when Tigray was on the back foot. Now Tigray is on the offensive, and the federal government is on the back foot. But now the federal government enjoys the same advantages that Tigray did in that Tigray is now fighting an offensive war in the mountains, in the hills, in this country that is just plain rugged terrain, just covered in rugged terrain. So now the Ethiopian government's going to have to take a page out of the rebels book and fight it out in the mountains until they can get the advantage. And they lost a significant portion of their army during Tigray's offensive. So now they have to rebuild. And that means not experienced soldiers are going to be fighting this war against better morale and slightly more experienced soldiers. So it's sort of in that way a parallel of the U.S. Civil War, where even though the federal government has more, the rebels have not necessarily better quality, but better morale. And in this case, in the case of Tigray, after having uh, annihilated a good portion of the federal government's army, they have more experience too. So 
that's going to be a problem. And uh, I still believe that Ethiopia can pull it out. They can pull the win out in the very end. But the timing of it all is just very, 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 very unfortunate given the forces at play. So peace in Libya would be really good given the destabilizing factors that are currently at play and they're, that are going to cause more destabilization as a result. Libya can at the very least be at peace and be unified in at least a political manner um, and not be shooting at themselves. They can at least be at peace when the chaos comes because we don't know if Morocco and Algeria are going to start shooting it out themselves because that's a possibility as well. They've cut off diplomatic ties and they continue to pour in their they continue to pour their economic wealth into military equipment and procuring more military equipment and the countries that they're getting it from are more than happy to sell it to them. So you have this region that's heavily armed uh, that is North Africa uh, and is getting more heavily armed courtesy of foreign powers who are proximate and or just involved and combine that with destabilizing factors between these heavily armed powers, Libya uh, split between itself and each side is heavily armed, Egypt against Ethiopia, they're both heavily armed, Algeria against Morocco, they're heavily armed, we have a problem. We have a very, very big problem. And then the Sahel is in a great Western war. Peace in Libya would be very, very good for Libya, given what we can sort of see on the horizon that might happen in the case of Algeria and, uh, Algeria and Morocco, and what is probably going to happen in the case of Egypt and Ethiopia. And that fight is going to have to take place over Sudan, so Sudan's going to be out of the game as well. They're going to have to pick sides. Probably not going to pick Egypt. Or maybe they will, because they fear Egypt's military. We don't know how they'll... We don't know where the dice are going to land on. We don't know how the cookie's going to crumble. We can just see that it's uh, getting pretty brittle. So, peace in Libya would be very good for it. And we're seeing more and more of these meetings coming about uh, as we get closer and closer to those elections. So we can hope for peace. We can pray for it. But I'll be pretty honest. The forces at play, uh, both in and around Libya, do not support it. They do not support peace. But there's always the possibility. And that's one of the things we look out for here on this podcast. So I speculate on it. Peace in Libya would also give them the ability to leverage the chaos around them to their benefit. And that is something that they can only do, they can only do, if they're not shooting at themselves. If the Libyan people are not shooting at other Libyan people, they can leverage the crisis around them in both Algeria against Morocco or Egypt against Ethiopia. They can leverage that. They could probably even build a military industry off of that. Or a number of industries off of that by selling the warring powers what they need. Because they can reach all of them technically. Uh, I don't know if they'd be able to reach Ethiopia. Maybe by plane they can. But um, I'd imagine the Egyptian military wouldn't be very happy about that. And Egypt has a pretty strong air force. So, 
But limitations aside, they have the possibility of being able to leverage the trouble around them to their benefit, but only if they're at peace with themselves. So that's one of the things we can uh, we can speculate on in the event of peace. Um, but it looks like chaos is going to win out in the end, but you don't know till it happens. Uh, and I guess in the, in the case of Libya, that's probably a good thing. So we'll pray for the best for good old Libya, and uh, we'll move on. So beyond that, uh, I talked we're, while we're still talking about Africa here, uh, Chad, I met, brought them up when talking about the war in the Sahel. They are set to nearly double their army size. And if you remember, they brought their troops back home from being in the Sahel fighting the Islamic militants. Uh, one of the, the president died, I believe, while he was visiting troops in the north of the country. But now they're trying to double their army, and they already have a moderately effective army. And I believe, and uh, oh my goodness. They have a moderately effective army, and they're well-experienced because they've been fighting these Islamic militants for years now uh, alongside France. So, doubling the army, and there's plenty of quality troops there to make sure that the new troops uh, get the best training that they can, which is something that Ethiopia is probably going to be lacking in uh, to a significant degree. Uh, And for Chad, the war is Kind of far away. Kind of. There's a little bit of it in the north of the country. And by little bit, I mean there's a whole rebellion in the north. Uh, and they... Actually, I think they took the capital. Didn't they? Or am I thinking of a, a different country? I think it's Chad. I believe it is Chad. But uh, I guess they're doubling the size of the military anyway. So, at the very least, uh, Chad is safe at home. To whatever extent you can call that say I don't know <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about Chad I just know they have a decent army and it's set to double now as far as the internal politics within Chad it looks a bit rocky uh, but at the very least they'll be protected from the outside by the army while they sort of fight it out on the inside in a weird uh, semi-parallel to the would it be a parallel to the Libyan Civil War? Uh, no, not quite. There's not, like, foreign powers stepping in on two sides. So, uh, I guess a contrast to the Libyan and Ethiopian Civil Wars, where even though they're fighting each other internally, the military is still there to keep them safe from external threats. So, a very, very clear distinction between them and some of their neighbors. So, there's that. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Uh, On the other side of the world, quad leaders have met in person for the first time. Uh, That is the quad being America, Japan, Australia, and India. Their leaders have all met in person for the first time, where previously it was all virtual meetings and whatnot. So this is getting uh, deeper, apparently. Uh, Eek. (laughs) Eek for me, and a hooray for the people who like this. Uh, uh, I don't want it, but I, I, I watch it. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, that's all I have to say. Uh, well, no, that's not, but that's, that's how I feel about it, but we're not here for what I feel. 
no, not not too much anyway. Uh, but they met in person for the first time, so this alliance is deepening uh, in a real sense. And that means when combined with AUKUS, which is the US, the UK coming together to support Australia, as well as the, the submarine deal uh, that France is upset about because they were excluded at the very end. Uh, again, Australia working with the US and the UK. Uh, it seems like Australia is coming to be the centerpiece of all these overlapping alliances. And thus, they're going to play a probably very, very important role given the trajectory that we're on. Um, I'd say that they would play an important role without even AUKUS or the Quad because a de facto alliance had already formed uh, in the absence of the Quad. It, this de facto alliance had already formed between them, Japan, and India just due to tensions between those three countries individually with China. Japan and India have a 10-year military pact. Australia and China are in a trade war that has very, very, very quickly soured relations between the two countries uh, and caused Australia to look out for help and call out for help, to which a number of countries, a multitude of them, have answered. So we have the Quad, which is again an extension of that natural alliance that it formed to counterbalance China and not necessarily counterbalance, but rather it, to oppose. Because that's what it is. I wouldn't say it's able to counterbalance China quite yet. Um, just due to the vast differences in capability between what the Chinese can muster through pure industry and population uh, towards what the rest of them can. India has the population to match, but not the industry. Japan has the industry and the navy, but not the population. Australia uh, doesn't have either of those, but they have a little bit of a navy. They have distance, and they have raw materials. And that is their strong point. Both of those are their strong points. Their raw materials and the distance between them and China. China cannot hit Australia, even if they take Taiwan. I've seen people talk about Taiwan. China taking Taiwan and that being a threat to Australia. Um, in a direct sense, it is not. In an indirect sense, it creates the possibility. But there's still Indonesia between Australia and China. Which means Australia should focus its efforts on maintaining really, really good relations with these four countries. All right. Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei. You do that... And Australia is safe. As long as those four countries remain at the very least neutral. As long as they remain neutral, Australia is safe. Because China cannot get to Australia without first going through those countries. Whether that's territorial waters, that's the Straits of Malacca, going the long way around uh, Indonesia and Papua New Guinea uh, to Guadalcanal. Uh, whether that's going through New Zealand, but Australia already has really good relations with New Zealand, so they need to focus fire, and by fire I mean focus their soft power efforts on those four countries. Because even though Brunei is really tiny, that's a foothold. 
China can build a naval base and that anchors them in the southern part of the South China Sea. Uh, so if that's Australia is trying to stop China from asserting that sort of dominance, you keep Brunei neutral. Malaysia uh, also would give China the ability to anchor in the southern part of the South China Sea, um, as well as give them really good access through the Straits of Malacca, because Malaysia, half of it, uh, is along that coastline of the Straits. Uh, There's uh, two banks of the Straits. There's the Malaysian part and the Indonesian part. Good if China were to win over Malaysia, they would have better access to the Straits. You keep Malaysia neutral, and you keep China from having that preferential access in the event of, say, armed conflict. And that's sort of the lens through which all these alliances are viewed through, so that's the lens with which we will sort of analyze Australia's position when they have to keep those countries neutral. Indonesia, I don't need to tell you why they need to keep Indonesia neutral. I only need to tell you, look at a map. Indonesia is huge, and it is the country between Australia and China. Australia, if Indonesia is neutral, is always going to be safe from China 9 out of 10 times. 9 out of 10 times because there's Papua New Guinea. And if Papua New Guinea is not neutral, well then China has a foothold extremely far closer to Australia than even Indonesia. And it could threaten Australia's lifelines to say Japan, uh, to New Zealand, and even to the United States. So while it wouldn't necessarily threaten their route to India, it would threaten their route to all the other allies that they've aligned themselves with. So those four countries should be at the very top of Australia's list of, well, that's the top of the kiss-up list, I should say. They have to kiss up to those four countries in specific, and at the very least, keep them neutral. Preferably, they're, uh, and actually, no, not friends. I was going to say preferably they'd be friends, but no, preferably you keep them neutral. That way, in the event that there is conflict between Australia and China, or Australia and its allies in China, those countries stay out, which means a buffer. It means China would have to invade their sovereignty uh, in a direct manner, uh, the sovereignty of neutral countries, to get to you, instead of already being in a state of conflict with them, the second hostilities break out. That is what we call a buffer state. And Indonesia is an excellent one. So that's my take on Australia's geostrategic position. Those are the countries they have to prioritize um, to keep neutral. They have their allies uh, in just through natural forces. They are allied with India and Japan. Um, the UK has come to their effort uh, and come to their aid. And really that's all that Australia needs. But the US and New Zealand are there as well. France wanted to be there, but now France is not. So, Australia has the allies that they need. So what they need to do now, because that's not going to go away. That'll, those alliances aren't going to go away for the time being, even if the, the U.S. were to pull a, a super-duper isolationism move tomorrow to my uh, glory. Even if the U.S. were to walk away, Australia has the allies that it needs. The U.S. is a bit of a uh, extra weight on the scale. 
So Australia can use the momentum uh, that China gives them, all of them, to stay together. They can use that and exploit that by focusing their diplomatic efforts not on maintaining an alliance that's going to stay together anyway, just due to geostrategic factors, but they can focus their efforts on keeping those four countries, Brunei, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea, neutral. And that will keep them safe. And as, as long as Australia is safe, the other two, Japan and India, can stay in the fight, if there is a fight to be had. And, well, that's the way I see it. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe you disagree with me. But uh, Australia has a really good geostrategic position, and they don't have to do much to keep it that way. Uh, in fact, they would have to do a lot to screw it up. But, but... That means that this alliance to oppose China has staying power. Oh, goodness. Isn't, isn't the real Cold War such an interesting thing to look at? So happy I was the first to bring it up. Maybe, maybe, maybe as time goes on and more and more things I say are proven right, people will say, oh my goodness, India and China were the real Cold War participants all this time. And I was like, yes. I'll be like, yes, yes, I was right, <laughs> I was right, but that's Australia, uh, I've gone into a pretty big tangent on their geostrategic position, but I felt it was necessary to be said, everyone's talking about the quad, everyone's talking about it, and instead of running away from this, this subject that I highly disagree with uh, even existing, and by that I mean the US being a part of it, because I don't want to be a part of it, Instead of, you know, just pretending it doesn't exist because I don't want to be a part of it, I have addressed it. And what I think should happen uh, to keep Australia safe. Because Australia being safe keeps the other two in the fight. That being said, I'm going to move on to the thing I said we were going to talk about, and that's a number of key elections around the world. Um, and you will get to that in just a moment. And we are back, uh, and before we get into the elections, we're, uh, I'll finish up with the rapid-fire uh, in an actual rapid-fire manner this time. The Azerbaijani Foreign Ministry says that the country is now ready to normalize relations with Armenia. Pretty good, especially after uh, they were at war a year ago, literally a year ago. The first episode of the podcast was based on that. Uh, and we have fuel shortages that have hit the UK and are hitting it so hard that the government there is debating whether or not to send in the National Guard, well, their military, to to basically do the work of the truckers, which is to bring fuel around the country. Uh, I bet the Germans are happy they have Nord Stream 2. But, uh, yeah. So that's that. Now we're going to get into some of these elections, and we'll start it off with uh, good old Germany. So, the... Uh, the elections have concluded in Germany and the results are as follows the Social Democrats got 25.7% of the vote the Christian Democratic Union pulled in 24.1% the Greens have 14.9% the FDP has 11.5% the AFD has 10.3% the Left Party has 49 and all the other parties collectively total about 8.7. Now, 
that the Germans uh, are, have finished their elections. They have to put together a, go a governing coalition, which is one of the one of the issues we saw in Israel was the struggle that they had in putting together that governing coalition. Uh, and for the first time, we've seen that they had to rely on Arabs in Israel to put together a governing coalition. And that opens the door to unseen places in Israeli politics. And while I don't necessarily expect that we're going to see something like that here, there's the potential. I mean, the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, is viewed as being far right. But to get a governing coalition, we might just see one of the... Uh, uh, we might just see them get incorporated into one of these governments. And uh, that, would, that would come with a lot of political fallout, given a lot of the disdain that is drummed up about them. Uh, I say drummed up because I can't exactly certify for myself what they are or aren't about. Uh, and by that, I mean I just haven't checked. <laughs> but if, if in Israel... Who also has a parliamentary system they have to find unlikely partners just to form a governing coalition we might see the same in Germany and that would make waves uh, a lot more waves if it happens in Germany than it did in Israel because Germany is a, a very big country not physically but you know in population terms like an 80 something million and they're in the heart of Europe they're in the heart of the EU uh, in, in a lot of ways they run the EU, uh, much to France's uh, dismay. France, at least under Macron, wants to get back to being at the top of that heap, but uh, the Germans are reasonably not in the mood to give up that position of being the top. Uh, so, with Germany in such a strategic position in international organizations, as well as in Europe, just physically, something like that, where these outsiders, these, this party, the AFD, that is viewed as being effectively a reject, at least they let the news tell it they're a reject, and I guess the election they got 10%. If they were to pull something out of their ass, and they get in on whoever the governing coalition it happens to be, that would be huge. It would mean that some of their agenda starts to get through. And some of their policy starts to get through. Because that's sort of how parliamentary systems work. It's basically an agreement that we'll join your coalition. Because you need us to form a governing coalition. We'll join your coalition. And in exchange you get these policies passed. So we might see something very strange happen in Germany. Uh, I won't go making any historical, uh, uh, well, I will, but not just, <laughs> I will say that the NSDAP never got a majority vote. So, people who view them as being, the AFD as being Nazis, uh, they technically don't need a majority vote, uh, to do what the Nazis did. In, in terms of securing power, anyway. But, even if they aren't as bad as people say that they are, 
they probably might not need a majority vote to say get in on the deal and make waves in Germany because from what I can tell they're definitely uh, how I say different from the other parties in Germany the Christian Democratic Party in particular that was the party of Angela Merkel so uh, what more can I say we were probably going to see something interesting in Germany uh, just watching them put together a governing coalition and that itself might result in something even more interesting which is them partying up with a a party that they've effectively denounced with every fiber of their being uh, and that is all these other parties might have to come together with the AFD sort of the black sheep of all these uh, political parties in Germany and that would be an interesting sight no. <laughs> That'd be a very funny sight. But, uh... uh, yeah, uh well, uh, that's... Ugh, that's about as much as I can say. I don't know too much about German politics. Just know that the AFD gets a lot of... A really, really bad rap. Um, I'm not gonna be out here defending them. I don't know these people. But, uh... What we saw in Israel, we might see in Germany. And I'll just leave that on the table. But while we're on the topic of elections, there are two more countries going through election cycles right now that uh, I feel are going to be consequential. Uh, we talked about Libya before, and they have a pres- they have an election coming up in December. But there's also Japan and France. Now, while I'm not quite sure when Japan's elections are, uh, their prime minister stepped down, Yoshihide Suga. So now they're trying to fill the void. Uh, And this comes at a time when Japan is increasingly committing itself to alliances and coalitions that are fundamentally, openly, and unabashedly uh, coming together with the explicit, explicit, unhidden (laughs) uh, purpose of countering China. Countering China. That is, at the top of Japan's priority list at the moment and the new prime minister is going to have to deal with that and I talked in one of my episodes about one of the many possibilities that the new Japanese prime minister is going to have to deal with and many of the realities they're going to have to deal with and that is uh, the potential that whoever wins and becomes the new prime minister might be the guy in charge when China makes their move on Taiwan and that's something you gotta factor in, cause they're throwing their weight against China, and more and more countries are putting their weight behind Taiwan, cause those are two different things. But increasingly, countries who are opposed to China are doing the second, which is putting their weight behind Taiwan. So what happens when you're the guy in charge? That's your position. Defend Taiwan from China, because we have to contain China. What happens when you're in charge, that's your position, and China takes Taiwan anyway? That would be a diplomatic disaster for you. And if you're living in this region, that would be a geostrategic disaster for you, and you're never going to recover from that. And I believe that is something that the new prime minister of Japan is going to have to think about. Well, they're probably not necessarily going to be thinking about it. But it's a reality that they might have to face. And I guess I'll just leave that as it is. 
it's a reality that they're going to have to face. That that just might happen under their watch, and history is not going to have a very, very nice place for them. Should that happen, they'll be forever remembered as the guy who lost. And the politics of it aside, you don't want to be that guy. You, you just really don't. Because um, I've laid out my position on why I believe China will be able to take Taiwan. I've laid it all on the table. And I guess the only thing I forgot to say was that once they've done so, they'll probably just flood the island with millions of Han Chinese and effectively colonize the island and make the Taiwanese a minority in their own island, which won't be too hard if they're putting Taiwan's major population centers under siege. People will die from starvation and from deprivation of basic living essentials. No supply aid is going to be able to get into the skies, Chinese blockade, air defenses, the Navy, submarines, and ship missiles. So the Taiwanese population is going to just drop off a cliff. At the same time, China is going to flood the island with a bunch of nationalist Chinese. and I mean nationals. I guess they are nationalists. People from mainland China. Because uh, nationalist China is the Kuomintang, and the Kuomintang is Taiwan. Uh goodness it's the the terminology behind everything i've just said is complicated but the basic premise is simple people from mainland china are going to flood the island of taiwan making the taiwanese uh a minority on their own island which will be aided by the fact that the taiwanese population will be under siege economic uh and military siege and that's going to do horrors for their population making the task of making them a minority easier and I, I guess that's the only thing I might have left out in my beliefs on how China's gonna take Taiwan but if you're the Japanese Prime Minister that's a reality that might just come to fruition under your watch and people are obviously gonna call for you to respond to that before they because the war is not gonna end immediately it's probably gonna go on for a couple months maybe even a year or two I don't think it'll be a total war, but that's a reality that might just make itself present, and it's going to be there once it does, and you're going to be the guy in charge, and you're going to have to respond to this. How do you do it? Because that is a losing war. How do you effectively carry out your country's role in a losing war? And that's, that's a really big conundrum that's a really big i do not envy whoever is in charge when that happens whether he's the japanese prime minister the indian prime minister the u.s president the prime minister of australia i don't envy that guy i envy the guy who's in charge of china when that happens i i uh, i would pray that i by way of i don't know if someone ever gathered up the dragon balls and made me the prime minister of Taiwan and this happened to me I would be upset I definitely do not envy the person in charge of Taiwan when that happens and I, I don't envy who who's going to be in charge of Japan when that happens I envy who's going to be in charge of China but this is a reality that the new prime minister has got to face and it comes with a number of questions and that's just the question that I I put out there because that's the big one for me is how do you execute a losing war 
when when everyone's put their weight behind we have to defend Taiwan, we have to stop China, and they lose, how do you respond? How do you recover from that? Because Japan is closer to China and Taiwan than Australia or India. So that issue affects them more directly than anyone else. Uh, well, anyone, I guess, except for the Taiwanese themselves. But, um, how do you do it? What do you do? I don't know. But I, I guess the new, the prime minister is going to have to figure that out. And there's a real chance that whoever wins these elections is going to be that guy when that happens. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we know where I stand on the matter. We, we shouldn't be there. But for those who put their weight and their livelihoods, really, behind this, behind the notion of we have to defend Taiwan, we have to stop China, how do you carry out that losing war? I do not know. I don't envy you. I don't envy you at all. But that's a question that I, in my geopolitical analysis, feel that I should throw out there. And maybe maybe the question will reach the people who we're talking about, and maybe they'll be able to figure out an answer. I don't know. I just know it'll take some big brain. You... I... I really do not know. I just know I don't envy you. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Japan is also going to have to oversee how they carry out these alliances. Because uh, we politics, geopolitics is half geography, half politics. There is a chance that they could sour relations with their allies. It won't necessarily make them not allies. It'll just make them less cooperative. And that could open the door for unwanted things to happen uh, before, you know, everyone gets back on the same page. So they're going to have to manage that alliance. Uh, it'll be there on autopilot in some way, shape, or form just due to geostrategic interest. I said that with Australia. But the cohesiveness of it does depend on the leaders in charge. So will the leader of Japan be able to effectively coordinate with his allies over the issue of China? Will they... May, will they be able to convince India that Japan is going to be there if China infringes on India? Will they be able to get India to promise to be there for Japan if China infringes on Japan? Because a military pact is only as useful as the willingness of its participants are to engage in it. So can he guarantee that India is going to honor their end of the deal? Can he guarantee that Japan is going to honor their end of the deal and convey that to India and increasingly convey that to Australia? Can he convince India to convey that to Australia as well? Because India has a pact with Japan, but not necessarily Australia. They're a part of the quad, but what does that mean? When the rubber hits the road, Japan, the Japanese prime minister, might have to play a role in clarifying where the lines are and probably clarifying the fact that this is binding all these alliances are binding with each other and between each other and all the members not just individual members with other individual members he's gonna have to play a role in that 
And that's something I feel he's going to have to think about. He's probably going to have to oversee a Japanese naval buildup. Because I do not see China and the U.S. getting into this naval arms race and helping Australia build nuclear submarines. I don't see all that going on without the Japanese thinking maybe we should build up our navy too. Japan, an island nation, seeing this massive buildup of ships in the waters just off their coastline, I don't see them not doing something about that when the navy is their specialty. So the new prime minister is probably going to oversee the naval buildup. He's probably going to have a say in the ships that are acquired to deal with these challenges. And the ships that are approved of by him or by his parliament are going to greatly affect the strategy that Japan takes and the possibilities that they will have open to them in the event of conflict. So I really do stress that there's a lot on the plate for whoever this new Japanese prime minister is. And the Taiwan issue, uh, which I do believe is going to be the big one, because it, it, there's just a lot of political pressure and a lot of political momentum going into that issue, and a lot of emotions riding on that issue as well. And in the case of Japan, it's a very geostrategically important issue as well, on top of it, whereas for the other countries it's pretty minor as much as they'll panic about it. The United States is an ocean away. Guam is far is far away from Taiwan, let alone Hawaii. Australia has Indonesia between it and China. India doesn't have to worry about the Chinese Navy in anywhere near the same capacity as Japan or Australia would. India has to worry about the Chinese Army and the Chinese Air Force. And potentially getting outflanked by Pakistan in the event that they have to fight China. That's what India has to worry about. So all these countries, all these people, all these emotions, and all this geostrategic importance, that this is a really, really important conflict for Japan, are all aligning behind the Taiwan question. And I have laid out that that's a losing war for whoever's, wh whoever's on the side of Taiwan in that, in that conflict. If you're on the side of China, it's a, it's a winning war. <laughs> you're, you're winning, winning, winning. You're on the side of Taiwan, you're going to be losing, losing, losing. And uh, the coalition against China is obviously going to be with Taiwan. And increasingly, they're making that known. So, uh, before we move on, I'll just leave the question there again. How do you conduct a losing war? I don't know. I just know I don't envy you. But then there's France. And France, they, they're in an election year right now. And France is making a lot of geostrategic moves. Everything they're doing right now, uh, I've brought this up has to be viewed through the lens of the fact that they're in an election year right now. Macron wants to make himself look as good as possible because in the polls, and for whatever you count the polls as being worth, Le Pen is on his ass. He, she is riding him in the most uncomfortable way possible. <laughs> and depending on the accuracy of the polls, she might even be ahead of him. We don't know. She might be a couple points behind him too. Uh, courtesy of margin of error because they're effectively tied right now in the polls. So assuming perfect accuracy on the part of the uh, political sampling so that you can get the clearest picture with a uh, margin of error, they're 
tied. And assuming bias on the part of that sampling, she might be further ahead, she might be further behind. That's just the nature of polls, but she's close. She's very close, and she's been growing since the last time he had a showdown with her, which is when he became the president of France. But now, he has a re- she gets a rematch, and this is coming at a time when France is getting itself into, uh, well, attempting to get itself into, uh, a lot of the larger geopolitical uh, movements, some of the larger movements. He tried to get France into the submarine deal with Australia. Um, he's trying to reach out to Russia. He's trying to reach out to West Africa. Uh, just last year, he had it. He was in charge during the showdown between him, and by him I mean France, between France and Turkey over the Eastern Mediterranean, and the the Turkish are not down for the count. They've just went home for the time being. Turkey might come back this year or early next year with a pretty lovely navy and they might just say, you know what, this is our, this here, you see this, the western, what, the, the, the eastern Mediterranean, yeah, you see this, the western Mediterranean, that's for you, the eastern Mediterranean, that's for me, and if you have something to say about it, well, go screw yourself. If Turkey pulls up like that, Within between now and the election, and France has to back down, Macron is going to be very hurt. Macron's very vulnerable right now. And there's not just the Eastern Med, with Turkey building up a navy, um, there's the fighting in the Sahel. There could be a major military re- reversal that could hurt his popularity. That would be bad for him. Something could happen in the South China Sea. And people could demand that he do something about it. And limited as though he is, he might not be able to do anything about that. That's a losing war. That could hurt him. If Russia takes Ukraine and he puts his weight against Russia and then Russia just ignores him, that could, that could hurt him as well. There's a lot of forces at play. A lot of the things that we have talked about that are at play that should they flare up at the wrong time, and that is between now and the election, it could really hurt Macron in his chances at getting reelected. And it would just be easy pickings for his opponent, which is primarily Le Pen and a number of others, to basically beat him down mercilessly. So he's in a very vulnerable position, and he's trying his best to keep himself in the news as doing things. And that's sort of the lens we have to look at France in right now on top of the lens of their expansion of influence. If the Lebanese economic recovery plan doesn't go as planned, he might be blamed for that, and that could hurt him. And the attempt at expanding French influence might come back to haunt him, uh, even if it does ultimately in the end benefit France as a whole. And that's another thing to keep our eyes out on. So... Pretty meaningful elections coming in around the world, and we'll see where they go. Uh, Definitely something to keep our minds on as we move forward, especially for the countries in question as they move forward, because these are their elections. Now, we can get to 
the next topic, the next big topic, and that is the U.S. southern border crisis. Now, it's been going on for a while. Uh, it, the fact that there was a crisis was a staple piece of the uh, Trump's presidential campaign and a source of his continued criticism of the Biden administration. But over the course of the last few months, the problem has gotten uh, decidedly worse. There are mass crowds of people showing up along the border and along the Rio Grande River, which is the demarcation line between Texas and Mexico, and they're crossing the river in really, really large numbers, and they're really just overwhelming Border Patrol at this point. Now, there was an attempt by the Trump administration to build a wall, uh, but that effort was immediately canceled after Joe Biden's inauguration, courtesy of executive order. Um, now, th that also seemed to coincide with the large influx of illegal immigrants to the United States, uh, his inauguration. And we're at the point now where we've got men on horseback rounding them up like cowboys in the Wild West. I think I brought this up like briefly in the last episode, but <laughs> the but it's it's the pictures. The pictures are glorious. The pictures are glorious to look at. <laughs> uh, but there were there were even reports that fourteen Mexican soldiers have crossed the border. Uh, in short, it's crazy. In short, the U.S. southern border is right now crazy. The federal government seems to be largely ignoring the problem. The uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, she was put in charge of the border and hasn't gone to the border once. She was put in charge like uh, a couple months back. What was it, in April or May? Was it earlier? I know it was back then. I know it was like towards the beginning of the summer, late spring. She was in, put in charge of the border. She hasn't gone to see it once. And people are... People on the right are more than happy to criticize her over that. And I'm just wondering why uh, people aren't doing their job. Uh, you know me. Uh, just uh, how, how do we get to this? But, um, it's, it's a mess. It is a whole entire mess. Uh, the federal government seems to be largely ignoring the problem. Uh, the only action that they've really taken in response to the problem was to ban horses after those images I told you about came out. But uh, they've banned horses, uh, but they haven't banned illegal immigration, which is, you know, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> if you if you ever wondered which side of this issue I'm on. <laughs> but um, it seems like the states, the border states themselves, uh, minus California are trying to address the problem by themselves. And this is mainly Texas, because Texas is the easiest way to get to the United States. California is a sanctuary state, but, you know, there's a whole desert between walking through Mexico and getting to California. Arizona is a desert. New Mexico is a desert. But Texas, only half of it is, a, uh, well, uh, about a quarter of it is a desert, and the rest is... Uh, either planes, airplanes, or lush green. Uh, very nice place to be. So, Texas is the destination for these places, which is why there's increasing focus on the Rio Grande. But, interestingly, a lot of the border states 
and even in the, the localities within California who are on the border are increasingly opposed to illegal immigration. That's even among uh, Hispanics in America. It seems to be a pretty big issue for them, probably because they, they left those places for a reason, and now you're just letting the doors open. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it seems... It seems like there's forces in play here. Um, I fail to put them into words, uh, other than the states are taking action on their own. The demographics, with regards to the opinion on the issue, are shifting. And shifting strongly in favor of border control, I should add. And we might see that reflected in uh, a midterm election. Uh, I do... What is that? That, that? That's next year, though. That's next year, though. Um, but for the time being, we'll see increasing unrest with regards to the state of the border. Um, we're... Oh, my goodness. We're, we're even seeing reports of Haitians coming in through the southern border, which makes no sense because Haiti is on an island. They share that island with the Dominican Republic. And, again, they're on an island... And it's not like this island is right next to Mexico. No, it is closer to Puerto Rico. So they're east of Florida. It's closer to Puerto Rico than it is to Mexico, which is to the south of Texas. So how are they coming by land? Uh, Brazil. Well, you'd have to take a boat or a plane to Brazil, and then you'd walk up all the way. You don't use... Where is our border control? Where... Where's the president? The real president. <laughs> oh, man. I, I can imagine that at some point in the future, uh, Biden's political opposition are just going to call him illegitimate president. Every time they're upset with him. I can see it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, well, let's see what the real president has to say about that. He goes, I am the real president. No, no, the other one. I can see it. Our politics are pretty petty at the moment. But uh, the problem is growing. The problem here is growing. And it is my estimation that it will have unforeseen consequences that will cause lasting damage on my country and great harm to many of the people coming here illegally as well. A lot of them are dying trying to get across the Rio Grande River. A lot of them are dying in the desert. A lot of them are dying in transit. Uh, it's really bad. It's really bad. The drug trafficking and the human trafficking. Uh, it's it's a mess. It's a really, really big mess. I would prefer if it was under control, but it is uh, not. And so, it has gotten to the point where I reported on it in the podcast. But, and that's the U.S. southern border. Now, we're going to move on to Ukraine. We've been talking about Ukraine a whole lot. But I'm talking about him again, because I, it is my firm belief that Ukraine is next on the hit list. Let's get into this, why I'm talking about it this time, and that is because the Kremlin has issued a statement last week, and it read like this, quote, any expansion of NATO military infrastructure in Ukraine would cross one of President Vladimir Putin's red lines and belarus said it had agreed to take action with moscow to counter 
growing NATO activity, end quote. This is huge. Because before, Belarus would have played both sides against one another. Those sides being Europe and the U.S. against Russia. Belarus would have played both sides back in the day for maximum benefit to itself. Because it would have been the broker between these two sides. But since the diplomatic fallout between Belarus and its EU neighbors over its 2020 elections, which have been highly criticized by the EU and the EU member states, and even the result of sanctions against Belarus, it resulted in sanctions against Belarus, that criticism, ever since that happened, Belarus has been isolated and has found only Russia as a friend and an ally. So, you have the diplomatic isolation over the contention with the election between Belarus and its neighbors, its neighbors minus Russia, mind you, and suddenly, that privileged position that they had, where they could sort of play the two sides off of one another and behave as though they were, and an, they were an honest broker, uh, a, a meeting point between the two sides, that position has been all but destroyed. Because of that criticism and that skepticism over their elections. However you may feel about it, this is sort of the results of that hostility. Now we're at the point where Belarus has agreed to take action with Moscow to counter growing NATO activity according to the Kremlin. And that is huge because if we're assuming that everyone lives up to the words and statements being said here, and which is always an if with topics like these. But if we're assuming everyone does live up to those words, then should armed conflict occur, Belarus's participation in actions taken by Russia against Ukraine would condemn Ukraine to total defeat. And now, why might that be? Why? Why why would that condemn Ukraine to total defeat? Well, look at a map, my good listeners. Look at a map, and you'll see that Russia's borders, as they are on that map, not sort of in the projection of where Russian troops already are, which is sort of an expansion of Russia's borders in a de facto sense, but if we just look at Russia's borders on that map, Russia's borders would allow them to envelop the Ukrainian military, uh, which is currently tied down in the east of Ukraine. And it, the Russians could do that with relative ease, because they own Crimea, and the way Russia's border sort of wraps around um, the west, not the west, the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, and the way eastern Ukraine sort of juts into southern Russia, it makes that sort of envelopment maneuver easy to do and that's just with Russia's borders that we can see on a map so from Russian territory they can destroy the Ukrainian army in a massive envelopment double pincer maneuver now add Belarus to that equation and 
once you do that, the combined Russian and Belarusian forces could threaten even Western Ukraine with military actions immediately upon the outbreak of a war. Immediately, because when you look at the map, you see that Belarus just juts from Russia straight into Europe, right along Ukraine's northern border, uh, basically consisting of almost the entirety of Ukraine's northern border. And Belarus promises to take action with Moscow. And if that action happens to be military in nature, Ukraine has a problem on its hands because its entire northern border is exposed. Their military is in the east. Russia can envelop that from, say, Smolensk, which is the little piece of Russia that sort of pokes out between Belarus and Ukraine. So from there, and Crimea, they can double pincer and catch the entire Ukrainian army. But you add Belarus to that mix, and they can attack from anywhere. They can... They can... It's, it's really, 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 really bad geostrategic position that Ukraine has found itself in. It only ever gets worse for Ukraine. I've said it. They're in an unwinnable position. I don't envy them. Uh, I might even envy... I might envy them less than whoever's going to be in charge when... Taiwan falls to China, but when you look at this map and you pretend that Belarus is a part of Russia, courtesy of the Union State, they can just sweep down. And the only real obstacle, the only real obstacle that they would face would be the marshes uh, in southern Belarus and northern Ukraine. Um, but beyond that, what would stop them? What's that? Because you can hold people off in such marshes um, fairly easily, but you're talking Russian air support and Belarusian air support and fire support. So a gradual beat back from those marshes. And once you get past the marshes, it's wide open flat terrain. And every resource Ukraine would have to put to defend its northern border, it's resources that they can't use to defend their east against Russia. That is a losing war. That is a very, very, very losing war. And it looks like Ukraine, the news around it just gets uh, tighter every day. Well, every week in this case. And as I've speculated and continue to say, it does appear that Ukraine is next on Russia's hit list. And tragically, and this is, this is why I really don't envy them, tragically, every action that Ukraine takes to defend itself, and these are very understandable actions, it, the, these actions taken by Ukraine to get closer to NATO and bring in allies and procure weapons from foreign powers and try to get them to help out, all those actions are, in the eyes of Russia, serving as the justification for its destruction. And I think that that destruction is on its way. I don't know when it'll happen. I just know that it'll happen when the Russians feel that they're ready, similar to Taiwan's situation, because 
Ukraine is not going to be so, uh, how you say, cooperative. Uh, nowhere near as cooperative as Armenia and Azerbaijan were. They're not going to be as cooperative as Central Asia has been. They're going to put up a fight. And they're going to have lots of foreign weapons. But I don't know if they'll have lots of foreign support. That's the, that's the uh, question that lingers, will foreigners send troops? I mean, the Turks might. They might send in a bunch of their mercenaries to fight the Russians and really see on the ground what the Russians are, what the Russian military is capable of. But beyond that, who will send them? Because even if America commits itself to that, how long is it going to take for America to put a meaningful force in Ukraine? What, by the time the Russians get to the, the Dnieper River? That, that's not very helpful. <laughs> you, you've lost half your country by that point. And then what? You're, you're two inches away from the full force of the Red Army with two battalions? Oh, that's a, that's a winning fight. It's not a winning fight. Uh, it looks like Ukraine is on the way out. And we... It might just end up going from being a country, this brief experiment it has as being a country, and it might just go back to being a geographic expression that people talk about when they talk about Russia. And that is the tragedy of Ukraine. The, the impending tragedy of Ukraine, I should say. It hasn't happened yet, but we're watching it unfold. I do not envy them either. But I guess if you're Russian, it's a. <laughs> if you're Russian, that's wonderful news. Oh, goodness. Oh, perspectives. Oh, perspectives. How you. How you twist things so. I don't think the Russians are viewing that as negative at all. <laughs> well, that's not a tragedy for them. That's glory. Wonderful, wondrous, wondrous glory. But, uh, yeah. Uh, glory for some is the downfall of others, and I guess that's history. But, that's all I have for you. Er, wait, hold on. Oh my god. It's. It's. The one year anniversary special! Oh my goodness. It's been a whole year. Ah. A whole year since I started this podcast. And so, to commemorate this, I'll commemorate it with a special episode. A special addition to this episode. Uh, I've done the episode as normal. And so this is technically the end of the episode. But now, I'll uh, begin a second part. And we'll get to that in just a moment. All right. Well, well, well. The one-year anniversary special. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. It's been a whole year. It's been a whole year. But I said I'd do a special part. And now what will we talk about in this special part? Well, I will finally get around to distinguishing between the U.S., and the U.S. Alliance system. And in this special episode, I shall address 
what the U.S. alliance system is and why it and its interests are different from the United States and the interests of the United States because the two are not the same. But their interests are used interchangeably by many who speak of U.S. interests. But many who say that and use that term uh, seem to uh, not actually understand what the term actually means. But I feel I do. Now normally, I give my opinion on a particular issue and do not claim it to be the definitive reality. Instead, I claim it's just the way I see it through my own observations and more often than not, my observations happen to be right. I pat myself on the back every day, figuratively. But on this topic, however, I'll be breaking from that policy. And instead, I will assert that what I say is the definitive reality of the situation, as I believe I'll be making a strong enough case to do so. But with that said, Let's get into the special anniversary episode. So, without further ado, here we go. <clears throat> Canada, Iceland, Norway, Britain, Portugal, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Luxembourg, Denmark, the Czech Republic, Germany, Italy, Slovakia, Slovenia, Hungary, Croatia, Kosovo, Montenegro, Albania, Greece, Turkey, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Romania, and Bulgaria, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Taiwan, Thailand, New Zealand, and Australia. This incredibly long list of countries only roughly encompasses America's commitments in the Eastern Hemisphere. The exception being Canada, as they're in the Western Hemisphere, they're right north of us. This list does not include countries where our troops are present without a more formal defense agreement, like Saudi Arabia, Djibouti, Iraq, Syria, Qatar, Kuwait, and many more, most of them in Africa and the Middle East. It is an elaborate and complicated system of defense agreements primarily designed to go one way, and that is the U.S. defending the other country, or countries, within the arrangement. And, and how, they, how do we get this? How do we get there? In the immediate aftermath of World War II, two countries emerged from that great conflict and rose to a prominence unseen before. The United States and the Soviet Union became superpowers. And like the great powers that came before them, they competed over influence uh, around the world. The Soviets, in the eyes of the U.S. leadership, needed to be contained. And the way in which this was done was by putting together the largest system of alliances and military defense pacts in human history. Countries from all across the globe were gradually expanded, uh, not expanded, they were gradually encompassed into this behemoth, which was made possible by, and it was centered around, the United States. But this marked a turning point 
in U.S. history. As every other time the U.S. had finished fighting a major conflict, it would demobilize, draw down the size of its armed forces to pre-war levels, sometimes even further than that, and it would resume its isolationist stance. Well, we weren't isolationists before the Revolutionary War, but we certainly were after, and we drew down the size of our military and our navy after that. We had, we had a lot of contracted uh, privateers, and we drew down the size of our navy after that war. It was the War of 1812. We saw large mobilization to defend our country from the British Empire again. Uh, we had declared the war again, um, and but we were being invaded again. So we called up the military. We expanded the military. We eventually were able to fight to a standstill after some pretty embarrassing defeats. We drew up the navy. And then, after three years of fighting, uh, we demobilized again. Then there was the Mexican-American War. Then, similar story, uh, primarily the army. Then it goes back down. Then there's the Civil War, where there was mobilization on both sides. Uh, two million men served in the Union uh, Army in total. About, what is it, one and a half? Was it one million in the South, or was it 750,000? Uh, I believe it was a total of 750,000. Uh, millions of men. Uh, and obviously, there was expansion of the Navy, and showdown uh, between the two. The, Union, the Union's main strategy was to strangle the South economically through a blockade. Uh, and there were lots of ships used in the rivers and the waters around the South. But once the war was over, we cut the Navy down and we drew down the size of the army as well. It was massive mobilization followed by massive demobilization. And the same thing would play out after World War I where we had an even bigger mobilization followed by an even bigger demobilization. This was not the case, however, after World War II. Splendid isolation after this war was replaced with a globe-spanning alliance and many, many foreign commitments. In a sense, the U.S. could no longer be isolationist, but not because the possibility wasn't there, as most analysts and other people in this arena would say and suggest. The possibility is there, and it continues to be right up to the current day, in fact. We've had allies before, namely World War I, and we had allies during the Revolutionary War. Uh, we technically had allies during the War of 1812. It was Napoleon and France. Uh, but uh, that was sort of an indirect alliance. So we've had allies before during wartime. But we recognized that once the war was over, you go home. Everyone goes home. So the fact that we have allies now doesn't prevent isolationism. It just means we've chosen to maintain the alliances over returning to isolation. So... The possibility is there, continues to be there, um, but after World War II, a choice was made um, not to go back to isolationism. So the U.S. couldn't return to that isolationism because it had chosen 
to stand by its newfound allies in the wake of the war rather than going home. And Soviet containment through alliances and isolationism are mutually exclusive paths. And America chose this time to break from its isolationist traditions and it chose the way of alliances. A fundamentally new path that gave us the Cold War. Because in all honesty, if America had returned to isolationism after World War II, probably wouldn't have been a Cold War. That's actually, I can say definitively, there wouldn't have been a Cold War. We, we wouldn't have been the ones fighting them fighting the Soviets over influence in Europe and Asia and Africa the Soviets would have just gone everywhere that they wanted um, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that they would have total control because China wasn't their puppet China was communist Vietnam wasn't their puppet and not after the Vietnamese Civil War ended North Korea ceased to, uh, well, ceased to be their puppet uh, after the war came to a standstill. So, while significant portions of the globe would have fallen to communism, had America returned to isolationism, there wouldn't have been a Cold War. And America would have maintained uh, splendid isolation, and it wouldn't necessarily be directly threatened. Instead, the nuclear arsenal of the Soviets would have been directed on its other communist powers who didn't want to fall in line with the Soviets. And that probably would have cause a coalition, the likes of which we haven't seen before, and there probably would have been another alliance system formed against them. Uh, just a, one of the one it one of the what ifs that I get in my isolationist foreign policy is what if we'd gone back to what if we'd stick to the tradition after World War Two? What would have happened? It's an interesting thought. But World War Two happens, we choose allies and Soviet containment through allies but that was mutually exclusive to isolationism, so we, in choosing that, we couldn't go to back to isolationism. Now, with this grand alliance came the need to defend countries that were previously devastated by the war. And so, military bases were set up all throughout Europe and East Asia, and the U.S. Navy was used to protect the shipping and traded goods of every country, around the world rather than just that of the U.S., as it had done before the war, and as every other navy of every other country had done before the war as well for their respective countries. The immediate result of this was the U.S. military being spread out across the globe, whereas it had previously been a rather consolidated force, whether, whether it was consolidated within the United States itself during peacetime or consolidated in the territory of whatever country we were at war with at the time. The spreading out of U.S. military assets, bases, and personnel resulted in sort of this redefinition of what a U.S. interest was. Where previously, U.S. interests pertained specifically and exclusively to the needs, wants, and dangers to the United States of America. In the post-World War II paradigm, however, the term U.S. interests was expanded to mean the interests of essentially every country and or political entity 
that happened to be under U.S. protection. This alteration of what is perceived to be a U.S. interest has muddied the waters of the meaning of the term to the point of people not even knowing there's a difference between the interests of the U.S. and the countries we're defending, let alone where the line between them is, or or even, I would go as far as to say, what the actual core interests of the United States are. For example, uh, these are pretty some relevant examples that I've taken. For example, people might say, it is within the interest of the U.S. to work with its allies to achieve its strategic goals. Or, people might say, the alliance with the Philippines is key to maintaining U.S. interests in the region, such as its freedom of the seas operations. And that region would obviously be the South China Sea. Or, and you tell me if you've heard this one before, defending Taiwan is crucial to U.S. national security interests in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, with these examples of generalized but commonly used statements that you'll find very quickly if you delve into the geopolitical sphere these days, uh, you might be wondering, well, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? You yourself might even be on board with some of those stances. So, naturally, you'll ask, as I bring these up, what's, what's wrong with them? To which I will ask, what is the purpose of the alliances we are a part of and is it necessary for us to be in them? I will ask, why does the U.S. have to provide the service of freedom of the seas in the South China Sea? And what does America gain from doing so? I'll ask, what are these national security interests that the United States has in America, in, in the Indo-Pacific? And how does America a country on the other side of the globe from that region, how does America have interest there? And the last thing that uh, people are more and more talking about, uh, well, let me rephrase that, that last one that I brought up, I should say, that last one, people are talking more and more about that region in specific, the Indo-Pacific, uh, primarily due to rising tensions between the U.S. and China, but again, what are those national security interests in the Indo-Pacific region? And how does America, a country on the other side of the globe, have interest there? Those are, my, those are what I'll ask. But the answers to these questions that one that I'll ask. I was about to say the question that one might ask. But no, it's me. It's me asking them. The answers to these questions are simple. Very, very simple. And it is that the U.S. the U.S. has no core interests in the Indo-Pacific region, not beyond Hawaii and Midway. Yeah, there's Guam, but Guam isn't even close to Taiwan, let alone Korea, the South China Sea, or China itself, let alone the Indian Ocean, for that matter. The United States does not need to maintain freedom of the seas in the South China Sea, and it gains nothing from doing so. It's not our trade being defended to the death. 
It's the trade of China. It's the trade of Vietnam and the Philippines. China may lay claim to the South China Sea, but everyone else has claims too. And believe it or not, China's not even the only country there with very unreasonable claims. I mean, the claims made by Vietnam and the Philippines are absolutely wild. And I, I, I don't have a way of sort of describing that uh, as I do with most things when I talk about maps. So really, I can all I can do is highly encourage you all to look up the uh, look up a claims map of the South China Sea, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. The, the Vietnamese and the Philippines and Vietnam in particular has wow. <laughs> you want to talk about the nine dash line? Vietnam has <laughs> Vietnam has the ten dash line. They they they. <laughs> And I was shocked. I was shocked because I, I knew they all had overlapping claims, but when I looked at the map in preparation for the special episode, Vietnam claims about as much as the South China Sea as China does. And it's incredible to look at. And what interest does the United States have in picking favorites there? Because, like I said, I'll highly encourage you to look up a claims map of the South China Sea to understand what I'm talking about. And when you do, you'll see that absent among these claims to the South China Sea are those of the U.S. Where are our claims in the South China Sea? We have none. Because we have no business being there. And lastly, with regards to alliances... The alliances we're a part of no longer serve a purpose. They provide no clear benefit to the United States, and therefore, it is not necessary for America to be in them. And no, and no, 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 deterrence is not a clear benefit. It is, at best, immeasurable, and truthfully, it exists without an alliance. Countries that are weaker than you don't threaten you. Countries that are far away from you generally don't go out of their way to cause problems for you because their energy is focused on their neighbors. Case, my case, in point, is that throughout the 1800s, America had very few issues with on the other side of the oceans, and even fewer problems with countries on the other side of the planet, people prioritize their neighbors rather than faraway countries, especially when countries are stronger than them. And in this context of the time when America had uh, a tiny army and only a moderately sized navy, the fact that countries didn't go out of their way to bother us speaks volumes about where deterrence actually comes from. Uh, distance is a deterrence and economy is a deterrence one of the primary reasons why during World War One and World War Two, that the warring powers didn't want America to get drawn into the war or why they didn't want to have to fight America is not because we had a massive army not because we had the greatest armed forces in the history of the world or the biggest navy or the biggest air force it's because we had industry, we had economy. It was the might of the U.S. economy and the size and scale of the United States and the fact that it was so far away 
all of those factors came together to create deterrence on its own without military without the military aspect deterrence was there you do not need allies for deterrence you just need to be strong you just got to be strong now if you're a weaker country and you need you might you might need allies if you're surrounded by enemies you might need allies america is a large and strong country america's economy is huge unfortunately we don't have quite the same industry that we used to uh china does now so those those calculations against war with the united states should be factored now into calculations against war with china that's my opinion um and unfortunately i think i'll be proven right on that but deterrence is not a clear benefit of alliances as deterrence is derived from forces independent of alliances in the case of the united states meanwhile the u.s has been caught up in these things uh that people say we have interest in but i reject this the u.s has no interests in the indo-pacific the countries in the indo-pacific uh, and countries around the indo-pacific might have interest there but we do not but because we are allied to those countries the u.s alliance system therefore has interests in that region the u.s has no interests in the south china sea the countries in and around the south china sea have interests there the united states is not but because we are allied to those countries the u.s alliance system has interests in that region the alliances we are a part of may no longer serve a purpose to the united states however the u.s alliance system has become its own entity with its own interests to bat separate from the united states yet dependent on it and the american military for its continued existence the united states alliance system is a completely separate entity from the united states itself the united states has no interest in getting itself into a losing war over china oh well over taiwan against china over the issue of taiwanese sovereignty a war to defend taiwan is not a u.s interest it is a taiwanese interest but because Taiwan is, one, a U.S. ally, and two, does not have the ability to, to pursue those interests on its own, the U.S. military is therefore called upon to pursue that interest for it. In a sense, Taiwan's interests, Taiwan's needs, as well as the interests and needs of basically every other country under America's defense umbrella, have effectively been superimposed on America and regarded as U.S. interests rather than what they are, which is the interests of many countries that are not the United States of America. Countries that exist and operate in many regions 
regions that realistically do not concern the United States of America for reasons that make themselves apparent when one looks at a map of the globe and especially America's position on the globe in relation to the regions where analysts claim America has interest in. We simply do not have interest in these places. The U.S. alliance system, more often referred to as the American... Oh my goodness, that motorcycle is so loud. But anyway, the U.S. alliance system, which is more often referred to as the American empire... Now, me personally, I don't refer to it as such, because empires are designed to benefit the imperial center rather than be subsidized by it, as is the case with the U.S. Nevertheless, the U.S. alliance system is an entity in and of itself, centered around America and with territory reaching far beyond America's shores, pressing hard up against countries like Russia, China, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Countries which to the United States are far away and not direct threats. Countries which to the alliance system are far from being far away, as their borders end where the borders of the alliance system begin. Russian borders end where Estonia, Latvia, and Norway's borders begin. They are U.S. allies, which means their borders are the borders of the alliance system. China's borders end where Pakistan, India, and Taiwan's borders begin. Uh, the questionability of Pakistan as an ally is, uh, we'll put that aside for now, but those countries are considered U.S. allies, and therefore their borders are the borders of the alliance system. North Korea does not border the U.S., but it does border South Korea, and Japan is nearby as well, therefore it borders the U.S. alliance system and a province of the alliance system as well. Iran, Iraq, and Syria are nowhere near the U.S., but they border Israel, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. Therefore, they border the U.S. alliance system. These countries, which are typically regarded as enemies and or adversaries of America, are nowhere near it. They do not threaten America, but they border American allies. And therefore, they border the alliance system. And with allied interests superimposed onto the U.S. as U.S. interests, these enemies of U.S. allies become enemies of the U.S., where on their own, they wouldn't even register on the conscience of regular Americans. And Pakistan is an interesting example here. Uh, people in the field of geopolitics, when talking about the U.S. role in Afghanistan, they'll refer to Pakistan as a key U.S. ally. But I, and reality, would beg to differ. Pakistan aided and abetted the Taliban for 20 years, keeping them in fighting condition while we were at war with the Taliban. It is no secret that they were hunt that we were hunting for Osama bin Laden. It was no secret to anybody. It was even the Casus Balai that we used to justify invading Afghanistan in the first place. So everyone 
knew who we were looking for, they knew what he looked like, and the Pakistanis, knowing this, then chose to hide him in Pakistan. And when we found him, he was a whole two inches from the most prestigious military academy in the country. So, either the Pakistani military is garbage and couldn't find a man right outside the compound of their top military academy, or they deliberately hid Osama bin Laden from us within their own country, right next to this prestigious academy. And I emphasize this situation that is, I, I emphasize it because that, that situation, that those actions, that is not what an ally does. That is, that's, I dare say that's what an enemy does. That's what a country that doesn't like you does. Pakistan is not America's ally. They're not even our friend, but they are a part of the U.S. alliance system, and therefore their interests are a part of the U.S. interests under this superimposition of foreign interests as our interests. With the maintenance of the alliance system also comes a counterintuitive incentive structure at home. Part of the way in which we've subsidized the existence of our allies is by allowing them to have unfettered access to the American consumer market. This, over time, created an incentive to prioritize their economic interests over our own. Remember the superimposition of interests. So now we get the economic aspect of that. Their interests are prioritized over our own, even within our own country. For instance, the U.S. has plenty of oil. And what we don't have, Canada does. Europe has next to no oil and no natural gas. And what resources they do are in Norway, or they're found deep in Russia, and even Azerbaijan, whose status as a European nation is questionable. The U.S. has no interests in extracting oil from other countries because we have it here. But European nations are our allies, therefore the U.S. alliance system has an interest in finding new oil and in providing safe shipping lanes to get that oil to Europe, because the U.S. doesn't have enough to supply Europe. The U.S. has no interest in helping the Saudi Arabians produce more oil. They're a competitor to us. Europe has no oil. So the Saudi Arabians are not a competitor to Europe. Therefore, because Europeans are dependent, not exporters, because there isn't enough oil in the U.S. to supply Europe on our own, and the U.S. alliance system must actively then assist U.S. competitors in their oil exports to Europe. And then, as a guarantee on that trade, it is enforced by the threat of the U.S. military. And the threat is that all countries denominate their energy trade in U.S. dollars or will invade you. This 
petrodollar is what it has been called. The petrodollar, weaponized often and understood little, the petrodollar is a key example of a non-U.S. interest whose maintenance is widely viewed as being a U.S. interest. So this non-interest is viewed as being a U.S. interest. People look at America's ability through the dollar to cancel transactions between other countries. And even our ability to cancel the ability of any country to do said financial transactions between them and another country, people view that as a strength and that the U.S. has an interest in maintaining and upholding that strength. And the reality of this petrodollar is far from that popular perception. The petrodollar is not a strength. It is among the greatest of America's many, many liabilities. The petrodollar system doesn't work on its own merits. The second any country decides they don't want to use the dollar for their transactions involving energy, specifically oil, thus the name petrodollar, then the system would break down. In the past, our currency derived its value from gold and physically produced goods. The petrodollar doesn't work with a hard currency. It needs a softer currency, and soft means the value of the currency can fluctuate more easily. It needs that rather than a hard currency, which tends to hold its value. The U.S. has benefits from having a strong and stable currency. But the U.S. alliance system demanded the petrodollar to secure all but guaranteed oil transfers. Uh, this, But this clashing of interests has combined with the trend of foreign interests being superimposed onto the U.S. as U.S. interests. And we saw the debasing of the U.S. dollar when we came off the gold standard in the late 1970s. The debased currency led immediately to inflation. Inflation that's only gotten worse over time and has gradually made our currency worth less over time. And it has led gradually to America's manufacturing base leaving and going overseas. The hollowing out of industrial middle America happened in the process. And due to the outsourcing of the U.S. industrial plant to countries primarily in Southeast Asia and the debasing of our currency that's led to rising prices and rising costs of living in the United States, the U.S. dollar has become dependent on the quote-unquote value derived from its position as the world's reserve currency. And the forced centralization of financial and energy transfers through the petrodollar system. In other words, the petrodollar system has incentivized the devaluation of our currency to the point of a dollar today in 2021 being worth less than three pennies were worth in 1900. It has incentivized the hollowing out of our industrial base that made us strong economically and created the deterrence that people uh, speak so highly of. It has also 
incentivize the imposition of a state of perpetual conflict on us and on foreign countries by both economic and kinetic means. The petrodollar is not a strength. It is a liability that has done America far more harm than good. It is therefore not in the interest of the United States to uphold, and it should, and quite honestly, it should be abandoned and or abolished. But because the superimposition of foreign interests as U.S. interest and Europe needs the oil, the U.S. alliance system has the interest in maintaining the petrodollar system. Now, having gone through some of the many, many, many things that are not within the interests of the United States, but are instead the interests of the U.S. alliance system, I shall now ask and address what are America's actual interests. What are the regions of the world that do concern the United States? And who are America's real key allies? And I shall address that. Real American interests. At the very top of the list of America's core interests is preserving the sovereignty of our neighbors. Infringements on their sovereignty by outside powers would pose a direct threat to U.S. national security. Direct threat. Direct as in only our neighbors can be used as staging grounds for invasions of the United States. Everyone else is just too far away. Now, whether or not those invasions would be successful or not are irrelevant. It's the possibility that matters uh, when talking geostrategic position. America has an interest in making sure no one in the Western Hemisphere signs away any of their ports to China on a 99-year lease, China or any other extra-hemispheric power for that matter. That is off the table. It is in America's interest to prevent that. Every now and then, countries descend into civil wars, which opens them up to undue amounts of foreign influence. We ourselves have been that foreign influence in a number of countries around the world. Uh, and one of the one of the best cases we can make for modern times is Syria, Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan, which have seen incredible amounts of foreign influence in these civil wars. Although many of them are now only now finally beginning to wrap themselves up through a multitude of means, they happened. They were prolonged by foreign influence, and foreign influence has gained influence in some cases through this intervention and in the event that one of our neighbors uh, say uh, Mexico has a civil war another one it would be in America's interest to prevent outsiders from intervening in the Mexican Civil War and you can take that statement remove Mexico copy paste the name of any one of our neighbors in North or South America and the premise would still apply. It would be in America's interest to keep outside powers just that, outside. Due to the geography of um, the Americas, which is two large continents surrounded by two large oceans and an archipelago between the two large continents, 
America has an interest in having a capable navy, and by way of modern warfare, it has an interest in maintaining a capable air force as well. There are no land routes to America or the Americas, meaning the U.S. actually doesn't have an interest in maintaining a large army, but rather a small, well-armed, and highly mobile force. As for the regions of concern to the U.S., the real regions of concern to the U.S., they go as follows. The West Atlantic, the Central Pacific, the Caribbean Sea, South America, Latin America, and North America. In specific, we're talking Guam, Midway, Hawaii, the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, Puerto Rico, the Panama Canal, the Colombian coastline, the Mexican southern border, the U.S. southern border, the Straits of Florida, uh, that is the body of water between Florida and Cuba, Cuba itself, Venezuela, the island of Bermuda, and Greenland. These places hold significant importance to America because they're either a part of America uh, or... They are uh, they're either part of America, as is the case with uh, Guam, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. Uh, they hold strategic importance to America. The Panama Canal, which lets us move from the Atlantic to the Pacific very easily, or the Straits of Florida, which is right between us and Cuba, or they enable the projection of military force against America, as would be the case with Greenland, Bermuda, or the Aleutian Islands. Or they are hostile to the United States of America, as is the case with Venezuela and Cuba. Or they are zones that are relevant to current issues affecting America, such as illegal immigration and drug trafficking, which is where Colombia, Colombia's coastline, the Mexican southern border, and the U.S. southern border come into play. All of these regions and the issues they face have either the potential to directly impact the United States and the lives of its citizens, or they already do. These are the regions of the world that directly concern the United States and its people, primarily for the reasons I've laid out, but all of them ultimately derive their importance to the United States from the overarching detail that is their proximity to the United States. In other words, these are what core U.S. interests look like. And you'll probably note, you, you observer, you very highly uh, intelligent and observa observational, you know. I'm trying to find a word, you know, I'll, I'll just settle for intelligent because that's what you guys are. But uh, you have probably observed that... Uh, this list of U.S. interests is nothing like what virtually all other analysts and geopolitical commentators have come to view as core U.S. interests. This is due, again, to the superimposition of interests caused by the U.S. alliance system and the failure of most to distinguish between it and the U.S. And talking about alliances and allies who are the real U.S. allies as it stands today. The real allies would be Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Japan, 
They, along with South America and Central America, who themselves are allied to the U.S., courtesy of the Union of American States, these are all real U.S. allies. This collection of allies, which in addition to the first five, encompasses every country in the Western Hemisphere, that is North and South America, with the exceptions being only Greenland, Cuba, and French Guiana. Therefore, it is in the interest of the United States to maintain good relations with Greenland Cuba, uh, and French Guiana and to sort of mend relations with Cuba. And they, they are hostile to us. The UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, on the other hand, always send troops to fight alongside us in whatever military engagement we get ourselves into. And they're usually the first ones to do so as well, earning them a definite place on the list of true American allies for military and, I guess, cultural reasons as well. The defensive agreement between the United States and the rest of the Union of American States serves as a pact that effectively ensures military aid to the American homeland in the event of invasion. It is the only one of America's many defense agreements that does so. And again, that is due to the proximity of the countries involved in it. They're all close to home, which makes them the best allies to rely on should it ever come time to defend ourselves and not someone else. Ooh, that was that was long, but there you have it. A clarification of distinction between the US and the US alliance system their foreign policy interests, their regions of concern, and why they are so different, and why they're different at all. I've been meaning to do this for a while now. I think I, I brought that up twice, the U.S. alliance system. I think I brought it up only like twice before. And I said last week that I was going to do an episode on it, and here it is. And I, I've, I've been meaning to do it for a while, and I figured the one-year anniversary of the podcast would be a good time to do it. So... Thank you for sticking it out with sticking it out with me for this extended special episode and thank you for being with me for a whole year. Let the second season of this week in geopolitics begin and I'll see you all next Monday where the world is changing and we are going to have fun watching it together. Servus.